0: This is from John chapter 18, and it says this, You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, You say that I'm king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. And uh, if you have not let your kids go, there's programming down the hall for them that will be way better than what we're doing in here. And so, you are welcome to send them at this time. What we have been doing in here is uh, we're about three weeks into a series that we're entitled. Uh, we've entitled Yolf. Uh, it means you actually live forever. And we are kind of building this case that you actually live forever. So the first week we were together, we talked about this desire that each one of us has in our heart that this life should not end, it should go on. We all want to live, live on, right? Uh, this the second week, last week, we talked about uh, research that indicates that life does go on after death. There are thousands of accounts from around the globe They kind of have been studied, they've been confirmed, and so science is telling us that we do go on. And as we build the case here and continue to do so, we'll do so today and next week, we're going to talk about the fact that Christianity says we will live on. There's a guy named Chad Chad Meister, and he was an electromechanical engineer who had grown up questioning the reality of God. He found himself in his apartment in Tempe, Arizona with a gun held up to his head. And in his anguish, he cried out, God, if you're there, show me because I don't want to live anymore. And the truth is, if you're not there, it's not worth living anyway. And so, in that moment, Chad had this experience where the room seemed to go dark, and all he saw in front of him was a scripture verse. <laughs> That confused him a little bit because he didn't really even have a Bible. He'd never read the Bible. It was Acts chapter 42. That was the scripture. He didn't know that Acts was one of the books in the Bible. And so, he put the gun down. He he tracked down a Bible. And that verse registered with him in a way that he could never have planned. And his depression lifted right then and there. And he began his journey with God. And like a lot of us, when he was a new believer, he was excited. He was excited about sharing his faith because he believed, right? And so he found himself sharing with a Muslim co-worker, and he realized that at the end of the conversation, the co-worker did a better job of explaining how wonderful Islam was than Chad did explaining Christianity. And so he realized, man, I believe, but I don't really know why. That very same week, Uh, a Mormon friend shared her Mormon beliefs with him, and he was challenged about the way she had shaped the Trinity, like maybe Mormonism is the way to go. And then another co-worker who was a part of a friend's sect attacked Chad's Christian beliefs, Uh, and then even later he was at a civic organization meeting, and the speaker there started talking about the New Age movement and that We are all part of this glorious flower of the universe. And after a barrage of these kind of things, Chad was just confused. He he began to rethink even the experience that he had had in his apartment. Maybe that wasn't God after all. Maybe it was some other divine reality. And all of the weeds of these other voices crept into Chad's mind, and they began to choke out the seedling of faith. And he became agnostic. Now, for the most part in this room today, I would venture to guess that we are people who believe, right? The challenge is, do we know why we believe? Because if we don't, it's just a matter of time before those, the weeds of all of the other voices in the world grow up around us, and if we don't pull those re- weeds right away, then eventually the weeds will win, So, Chad did something that a lot of people don't do. He actually began to evaluate worldviews. He asked which worldview is reasonable, which is logical, uh, which has the evidence on its side. And he said this, I ended up researching worldviews for a year and a half. And at the end, the conclusion was clear, Christianity is the most reasonable, the most livable, the best supported evidentially, and it matched my own personal experiences of God, so I recommitted my life to Christ. Now, since that time, Chad Meister has accumulated amazing credentials. He's a philosophy professor at a a Christian Christian university. Um, His first book, he's written several Uh, was called Building Belief, Constructing Faith from the Ground Up. And in that book, he gives us this this logical path that he constructed for himself. He calls it the apologetics pyramid, and it's a visual depiction of how a quest for truth about Christianity can be logical, and it can be systematically pursued. And it kind of starts with the broadest of questions at the base, and it keeps narrowing Uh, it's, It's questions and issues as you climb the mental pyramid. And the goal of this is to show that the most reasonable understanding of the evidence that we have around us is that Christianity is true. And so it's solidly useful for us today as we go through this series where we're talking about we want to live on and science is telling us that we live on. What does Christianity have to say about life after death? And more importantly, can we trust? what Christianity says. And so, the apologetics pyramid contains six levels of thought. We're just going to do half of them today. Uh, don't want you to get nervous or anything. And um, let's just begin with that very broad um, level at the bottom, truth, and ask this, why can't everybody be right? And so, Jesus is in front of Pilate on the day of his execution, and he says to Pilate, the reason I've come into the world is to bring the truth. If you are interested in the truth, you will listen to me. And Pilate gives this mocking reply that's quite famous. He just says, what is truth? You can see the scoff, right? Now, if you were asked that question today, how would you answer that? What is truth? Plato said this, that a true claim states the way things are, and a false claim states things differently from the way they are. Now, that seems kind of simple, like, duh, but man, think about that just for a few seconds. That is profound. It's a claim that a proposition is true if it corresponds to fact. And so, the moms in your life look beautiful today. That's a true claim, right? Because the core, it, it corresponds, that statement corresponds, and it matches reality. Because the truth is, all the moms in your life are absolutely killing it today, right? Or we could go this, this way. Uh, the uppermost part of this room, uh, that little hexagon up there, is 50 feet 3 inches. I came in here and measured it this week. And that's a claim that I'm making. And you can take a measure, measuring tape or a device, and you can see if that claim is true, whether it matches reality. And see, that little exercise tells us that there is such a thing, there is such a thing, is absolute universal truth. 50 feet, 3 inches will always be 53, 50 feet, 3 inches. 2 plus 2 will always equal 4 North is always north, despite where your mom feels like it should be. Uh, some, of, some of us are like that, right? Gravity always works on the earth everywhere. Water always freezes at 32 degrees, and moms always look beautiful on Mother's Day. Truths, they're absolute, and they're statement, they're absolute, they're universal because they are statements that match up with Reality. There's a familiar line that we hear today. It goes like this, my truth is not your truth. And it's the idea that we can all have different truths and that's just how it is. We can get all, we we can all get along, right? Let me spend just a moment on Mother's Day talking about my mom. Because uh, a minute ago or a few minutes ago, my mom was actually uh, the swim coach for the Fort Scott Summers Rec swim team. And she had a saying when she was the swim team coach and it went this way, You can't argue with times. Now, why did she have that? Because every summer, there would be a parent or two or three that would see some other kid in a lane or an event that they thought that their kid should be swimming in, and they would say, why isn't my kid swimming in this race? My kid is faster than that kid. My kid has a better stroke. They should be there. Why aren't there? And Coach Drake would spring with a calculated response, and she would say, well, There's this little device that we use at practices called a stopwatch. And it measures the time it takes for your kid and every other kid to go down the pool and back. And that kid's time is faster than your kid's time. It may not always be that way, but it is today. And that's why they're swimming there. And they would stammer and they would say, well, my kid's still better looking. And they would go away. Why? Because you can't argue with times. That's the point. You can say, hey, my kid is faster than all the other kids. You can say that that's your truth, but it doesn't make it true. That's a hard uh, parenting lesson that a lot of us have to learn along the way, that our kids aren't actually the fastest or the smartest, and that's okay. They'll be fine. But the stopwatch tells us that there is absolutely a, such a thing as universal truth. Now, can we take that principle and apply it over in religion? What it, is it religion different? I mean, that's, different, that's a different kind of truth, right? That can't be absolute, can it? I mean, when it comes to religion... Uh, truth is surely relative. It's determined on, uh, by what you believe, maybe where you're born. Uh, so I can understand that the stopwatch is in the pool and there's only one kid that's fastest, but, but in religion, I mean, in that pool, we all get there, right? There are several paths up the mountain. We're all going to get there. Eventually, it doesn't really matter. Everybody wins. I, wanna, I want you to think through a couple thoughts and let's start here. Number one, all major religions make claims that are absolute, absolute truth claims. Here's number two. They all contradict each other. And so Christianity will say, Jesus is God, the Messiah who died for our sins. And Judaism will say, hey, Jesus was a respected rabbi, but he was absolutely not the Messiah, and he did not die for sins. You see the competitive going on. Islam would say Jesus is a wise prophet who did miracles but not a God who died for sin. Hinduism will say Jesus was a wise holy man. He is a God, but he's not the God. Buddhism will say Jesus is a wise holy man who was enlightened. The New Age movement would say Jesus is a wise teacher of Morals and what do we learn there? They contradict each other. All of those claims contradict each other, so therefore they cannot all be true. It might sound charitable in our society to say that all religious claims are true, and it might warm your heart to put a coexist bumper sticker on your car, but it's logically absurd. Just like it's absurd to say all of the kids are the fastest swimmer, the truth is there's only one who is, and it's the same with religion. They cannot all be true because they all make competing claims, and if that's the reality, then our task is to determine which one of them is really true and necessarily discard the rest. And so, this level one conclusion is this, that truth is not relative, it's not determined by what we believe, no. Truth is whatever is consistent with reality. You cannot argue times. And that principle works in the swimming pool, and it also works in the theology pool. So here's level number two. And Meister calls this uh, worldviews, just the, the, the clash of the three isms. And so let's talk about what a worldview is. It's just simply a collection of beliefs and about the central ideas of life. And so, our worldview is the lens through which we view life, whether we choose that lens or not, or are born into it, or come to a logical conclusion about it, it doesn't really matter. A lawyer in New York will have a vastly different view of the world than an aboriginal woman in Australia. They just see the world differently. And so, every known religious worldview can be boiled down into about three camps, uh, theism, atheism, or pantheism. Theism would include Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the major religions of the world. And theism would say there absolutely is a God and you actually live forever. We have souls and we are immortal. We we will live after this life. That's what theism would claim. There is a God and he has created us to live forever. Atheism, uh, another word for that would be naturalism and uh, atheism would be a completely different worldview that says, no, 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 there is no God because we're here by accident, and so actually, you only live once. You live this life, you die, that's it. That's what atheism would claim. Pantheism would be associated with Eastern religions. Maybe you've heard of Hinduism or Buddhism or Sikhism, those kind of things, and they would say, everything is God. And so, yada. Uh, You always desire awakening. Everything is God, and everything is also an illusion, and and so our job is to kind of escape the illusion through meditation and uh, to have this awakening kind of thing so that we can experience the God that we are because everything is God. Now, those three isms, did you know, they contradict each other, and as we've already learned, they can't all be true, right? Right? And so how do we figure out which one is true? And there are two crucial tests that we have to, uh, that we can use. Number one is logic. If a worldview is to be rejected, if its core beliefs are contradictory or incoherent, the second test is just livability. A worldview has to be rejected if it cannot be consistently Lived out, And so, just for the sake of time today, let's just talk about the livability side of these worldviews. Let's start by asking, is atheism livable? Can you live this worldview? Maybe you've heard of Jeffrey Dahmer. He said this, if it all happens naturalistically, what's the need for a god? Can't I set my own rules? Who owns me? I own myself. That's Jeffrey Dahmer. And so Dahmer, who owned himself, who set his own rules, decided that he would kill 17 men and boys and chop them up and put body parts of them that he wanted to save in his freezer. John Paul Sartre said, everything is indeed permitted if God does not exist. And the main tenet of atheism here is that there is no rulemaker So, there are no rules, and the problem is, you can't live that. We do have rules in our society, and if without rules, we would destroy ourselves and our world in short order. And so, you have to account on some level for why we have rules. And so, some will say, well, these moral rules are just made-up constructs to fit a given situation. Okay, you can say that, but you just can't be consistent to live that way. Atheism is devoid of any foundation of right and wrong, and it isn't plausible from a livability standpoint. Now, what I'm not saying is that atheists can't be good people. I'm absolutely, uh, they absolutely can be. Atheists can be good people. They just don't have a reason to be. Their worldview wouldn't even be able to say what good is outside of helping the human race survive. Tim Keller, just this last week, as I was putting all this together and thinking through it, he tweeted this, and and it fits perfectly. He said, unless there is a God, all the values we cherish are imaginary. They are there just to help us pass on our genes to the next generation. They are a farce. What's he saying? He's saying if we embrace atheism, then we have to lie to ourselves in order to live by the rules which shouldn't exist in the first place. And that's not livable. So, is pantheism livable? Let's, let's move there. A pantheist, remember, says that God is everything, and everything is God. You're the God. uh, I'm God. Stage is God. uh, The microphone is God. uh, The chairs are God. Everything is God. And so there are no distinctions. They're just illusions. Uh, There's no right or wrong. There's no difference between cruelty and non-cruelty. There's no gap between good or evil. And if you ever encounter somebody that says that, I want you to just ask them for their, their wallet or purse. Just say, hey, can I hold that for a second? And when they give it to you, walk away. And as they watch you uh, taking their possessions away from them, they'll realize really quick that there really is a difference between right and wrong. See, you can say that it's an illusion. You just can't be consistent and live that way. Pantheism isn't plausible from a livability standpoint either. And so let's move to theism. Is theism livable? The major hurdle for theists is this belief that there is a powerful God who is loving, who created everything. And the major hurdle then is that there is evil and there is suffering in the world that this good and loving God created. And that's a big hurdle. It's a problem that everybody faces. And the thing is, it's not just a problem for theists. Like, atheists and pantheists have to address the issue of evil and suffering. Why do 35,000 children die every day on a planet that has more than enough food to feed them? Why does genocide exist? Why is it a thing? Why does a tornado plow through the middle of Kansas and ravage people and land? And to to those questions, theism, I believe, has the most plausible response. Let me give it to you really quickly. Number one, free will. Theism says that God could have created a world where we were like robots without freedom to choose. but. The inability to choose also means the inability to love because robots can only do what they are programmed to do. That's not the way God made us. God made us so that we have a choice. Love isn't love unless it's chosen. Moms, have you ever been on the receiving end of a very forced, happy Mother's Day, right? Love is love when it's chosen. But with the choice to love, comes necessarily the choice not to love. And we can choose good, but then we can also choose to turn away from good, and evil comes into the picture when we do. And that's a very plausible explanation for why we have evil in the world. Now, it's very plausible, but it's not much comfort. And so I want to give you a little comfort today. Homemade cookies. How many of you like homemade cookies? How many of you agree that homemade cookies make everything better? Absolutely. They even make theology better. They really do make the evil in the world livable, and I'm going to show you how. The next time that you are baking homemade cookies for your mom, I want you to taste each ingredient individually. Take a little bit of that baking soda. Put it on your lips. Just a taste. You won't do that twice, right? Raw eggs. Oh, that's gross. I'm not, uh, I'm not rocky, right? Vanilla extract. It smells good, but no. The truth is, no one wants to eat some of those individual ingredients, but everybody loves the cookie that they produce. And that's a great picture for us. See, the bad in your life is like all of those individual ingredients. God doesn't want them to happen to you. Each incident is a terrible taste in your mouth on its own. You have hurt and pain and death in this life and free will will has made them a part of this life. God did not cause them. But he is powerful and loving, and he is so powerful and loving that he's able to take all of those painful events in your life, so bitter when you see them just on their own, and he's able to mix them together until they make you into a beauty that you could never have been otherwise. It's painful today, right? But the promise of God is that eventually, down the line, good and bad all get baked into this delicious cookie that makes everything right. That's the promise of God. And so there is no contradiction in God existing on one hand and suffering and evil existing on the other if God has a good and sufficient reason for allowing suffering to exist. It's at least logically possible that God does have such reasons. And you can, we can lay one out really easily. Have you ever known anybody who has gone through a serious or a difficult tragedy who has then come to the point where they've acknowledged God because of that tragedy? Absolutely, we know people like that. And so there can be a good reason for suffering. C.S. Lewis says it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts to us. In our pains evil is his megaphone to rouse a death world and so the bottom line for this second level is that pantheism and atheism disqualify themselves because of logical incoherence and just uh, from the standpoint of livability but theism survives those issues it even accounts for the hurdle of pain and suffering. And so, level three would be, let's take, uh, let's discount the other two. Let's move theism to that block. And what do we see as reasons that theism might be true? Can we see fingerprints of God that He has left on the world to show us that He's real? There's probably a couple dozen of these. Let me give you three really really quickly. Number one, the fine-tuning of the universe. A university professor at the University of Oklahoma says this, shortly after the Big Bang, the amount of matter in the universe was precisely tuned, the amount of matter precisely tuned to one part in a trillion, 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 trillion. That's 10 with 60 zeros after it. In other words, he says this, if you just throw a dime's worth of extra matter in the universe, it would not exist. And his conclusion is this, I think the most plausible explanation is that the universe was designed by a creator. Number two, the beginning of the universe. Whatever has a beginning has a cause. The Mother's Day picture that a lot of you will take today will exist today because you caused it, moms. You said, I want a picture with my family. You are the cause and... and That picture will exist. And just like that, the universe has a beginning. Nobody disputes that, virtually nobody. It began to exist, and whatever begins must have a cause. Therefore, if the universe has a beginning, then it also has a cause. You can go a step deeper with that. That the universe is made of matter and space and time and physical energy, and so the cause behind all of those things must be timeless, spaceless, matterless, and powerful enough to create all the physical energy that exists in our universe. That sounds like God. Here's number three, objective moral values. There are precepts and ethics that are morally binding on all people at all times, in all places, whether they follow them or not. We've talked about that a little bit already today. All people everywhere know that these objective moral values exist. On Mother's Day, thou shalt call your mother, right? That's an objective moral value. We all know that's right and true, and it points us to the giver of those moral values who is God and who does exist. And that gets us halfway up the pyramid. Uh, There are three more steps next week. I want to invite you back as we climb the pyramid. But if we jump to the top today, I can tell you what is true without question. I had a vision when I was in college. Uh, I was in the Ozark Christian College cafeteria, and I was deep in prayer and meditation over a cookie (laughs) and a vision. Walked through the door. The vision had on pink sweats. Uh, For those of you who were not around in 1989, those were the yoga pants of 1989. And I had this vision for long enough that I came to believe that it would be a good idea to marry this vision. And so one day I came to this vision with a cookbook and I said, Amy, vision of mine. Let's get married. And when we do, the principle of our marriage will be found on page 278 of this cookbook. And the principle is oatmeal, peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. And right here on this page are the laws of oatmeal, peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. And I pointed to them. And it says... Thou shalt take one cup of sugar and two eggs and peanut butter and oatmeal and this and that and mix them all together in a bowl and thou shalt bake them at 350 degrees for 12 minutes and thou shalt get the most delicious cookies ever conceived. And I said, if you'll keep this cookie rule for the next 50 years of our life, then maybe I will think of accepting you. And she said, what medication did you forget to take? right she said, goodbye. (laughs) Now, you know that I didn't do anything like that. That's crazy, right? Nobody wise would start a marriage like that. Who would agree to that kind of arrangement? And yet, that's what millions of people around the planet believe about God They believe that God has handed them a cookbook of rules, and if they keep the rules, whatever those rules are interpreted to be for 40 or 50 years or maybe 78 years, then God will accept them. Listen, you wouldn't insult a fellow human being by suggesting that a relationship be based on merit. Not anyone in this place would would meet a friend for the first time and say, great to meet you. I'd love to be friends, and we can absolutely be friends, and we can keep being friends as long as you buy me lunch every Thursday. Nobody would do that. You wouldn't insult another person like that. And I certainly didn't want to insult Amy in such a way, and so I did not give her a cookbook. And the secret to our marriage together is that we have each accepted one another unconditionally. And we started that from the very first, from day one, for better For worse. And the interesting thing is that that unconditional acceptance that we both have for each other has set us free to learn enough about the other person that we discover things. Like she discovered my love for oatmeal, peanut butter, chocolate chip cookies. There was a time that I didn't even know those existed, but she discovered that I liked them. And then she discovered this desire in her to learn how to make them and then to keep making them better. And that's the genius of Christianity. You and I have made a mess right off the bat. And God says, I forgive you. Because of what Jesus has done, I'm going to deal with the biggest problems of your life. I'm going to transform your life, not based on what you can do, the bar you can, you can jump over. No, based on what Jesus has already done. God doesn't say, I want you to prove yourself for 40 or 50 or 78 years. Right away, when we come to him in faith, when we come to him in repentance, when we come to him in baptism, we get immediately transferred from death to life because of what Jesus has done. And Jesus, the one who will ultimately judge us for all that we've done, says, because you've trusted me to cover your sin and guilt and the mess you've made in life, I accept you, and I will never reject you. That's unconditional love. And that kind of unconditional love does something to us. It makes us want to love back. It makes us want to love more than ever. It makes us want to learn how to make the best cookies in life that we can so that we can honor and love this God the most. How do you see God today? Do you see him as the ruler of heaven that's waiting to slap you on the wrist when you you fail or slip up? Or do you see him as he is, the God who has made a way through Jesus Christ for you to be forgiven, for you to be holy, for you to be perfect in an instant, in a decision? You don't have to prove yourself. Jesus has done the proof for you. It's as if God wants you to be his son. God wants you to be his daughter. God wants you to be a part of his family. That's the invitation to know the God who accepts you right up front and will never leave you or forsake you. Lord, I thank you for this universe that you have based on who you are. You are love, you are holiness, you are order, you are justice, you are forgiveness, you are mercy, you are compassion. You are the word that has spoken and said, I created you, I died for you, and I love you. And God, may we commit ourselves in a new and a deeper way to the source of our life, the living word, Jesus. And it's in his powerful, saving name that we pray today. And everybody said, amen.